We carry on with our series in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, one of the more famous chapters in Isaiah, but uh, we'll discover, I think, that uh, it's got a very powerful sting in its tail. So let's read it, then we'll pray, and then we'll study it together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Right, let's pray together. Our Father, our prayer is simply this. That as your people today, that as a church, we would see and keep on seeing, that we would hear and keep on hearing the Lord. We want to see you for who you are. We want to hear your voice. We want to be useful to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah, if you've been here with us, you'll remember, was a prophet in the period 740 to 700 B.C., And as we've seen, as we studied this book, Isaiah prophesied, he spoke, he preached at a time in the history of God's people when God's people were in a pretty bad way. They had lost their edge, their distinctiveness as God's people. They had become just like the world around them. They were not walking in the light of the Lord, not trusting him, not obeying him. Their leadership was weak. They had rejected the word of the Lord. There was a faithful remnant. There always is. 
But the general state of the people of God was poor. And God sends his prophet Isaiah to preach God's message to them. It is a message, as we have begun to see in the opening five chapters, that exposes the true state of their hearts. It's uh, been striking for us to see that on the surface, God's people looked pretty well. But the prophet gets under their skin and into their hearts to expose the true state of their hearts. God's message of judgment, and it is that, and the consequences of their loss of distinctiveness, are never born from any sense of vindictiveness in the heart and on the part of God. Rather, they express his broken-heartedness. And with the intention always, because he is gracious and merciful, to render his people once again distinctive and walking in the light of his word. One of the most moving things about the prophecy of Isaiah is that in spite of the fickleness of the people of God then and now, God's plan to have a faithful people, God's plan to take his message of salvation to the nations of the earth, God's plan to have a glorious city called Zion, a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, and a new earth, God's plans will never be thwarted by our fickleness or unfaithfulness. God's vision and his purposes and his plans are not, I think, to be understood as in spite of us, or God saying, I told you so, or I'll do it anyway. God always wants us to be on board with his plan, and he will go on relentlessly out of a gracious heart seeing his plan come to fruition. And that's a bit of background to the book, chapters 1 through 5, an exposure of the state of God's people that is bleak, judgment, consequences, but into the heart of that, a prophecy of hope if they turn to him, that he will build his faithful city in the end. And then we get this chapter 6, which is Isaiah's call and commissioning as God's prophet. Now, a good question to ask is, why is it here in chapter 6 and not in chapter 1? Prophecies like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they are at the beginning of the book, the call of the prophet. Why shun it back to chapter 6? Well, I guess, for one reason, to give a bit of context to the state of the people of God, the spiritual atmosphere into which Isaiah was called and commissioned as God's prophet. This is the world God calls him to come into and minister from. But there's another more fundamental reason, and that is that Isaiah himself needs to come to terms first with the fact that he is part of the problem, that he himself is a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah needs to see that before he can be of use to God as his prophet. Now, these are the reasons, I think, that the call of Isaiah is here and not at the beginning of the book. Now, inside the service sheet, you'll see three headings. Now, always three, or six, or nine, never four or two. Always three. Here we go. Isaiah sees and hears the Lord. That's the bit that we know, you know, the bit that ends with, 
Who will go? I will go. Off you go. But then the sting in the tail is part two. Forty years of faithful ministry to God's people, and they will not see God, and they will not hear God. That's a big sting in the tail. And then thirdly, God knows what he is doing. Firstly, Isaiah sees and hears the Lord, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord. He sees and hears the voice of the Lord. Now, who was Isaiah? Well, we don't know for sure, but probably he came from a background not of obscurity, but connected in some way into the leadership of God's people in his day. A relatively young man with 40 years of ministry ahead of him, recorded in this book. Where was he when he saw this vision of the Lord and heard the Lord? Probably in the temple, which in Isaiah's day was the magnificent temple built by Solomon. So picture Isaiah in your mind going into the temple that day, as he would often have done. This young man connected in some way into the heart of the establishment, the leadership of God's people in his day. And in the temple that day, in this magnificent temple, he sees this vision of the Lord and hears the voice of the Lord. When does it happen? Well, in the year that King Uzziah died. We enjoyed uh, gathering together last Friday to have a quiz night. Uh, imagine if this had been one of the questions. What was the year that King Uzziah died? Would have been a trifle unfair. Although I would have known and we might have won. 740 BC, that's when he died. He had been on the throne for 52 years in the early part of his reign. He had led God's people faithfully. He'd been a good king. He'd been a good leader. He had led his people under the rule of God. And he had walked in the light of the Lord. And God's people thereby had walked in the light of the Lord because their leaders had. But while he started well, he lost his way. He compromised in all sorts of ways. And as the leader of God's people, he led them astray. Ten years earlier, God had struck Uzziah down with leprosy. And for the last ten years of his reign, his life, 750 to 740 when he died, his son Jothan had ruled as his regent. And so for the last ten years before King Uzziah died, before Isaiah saw and heard the Lord that day in the temple, there was, in effect, nobody on the throne, no leadership, and no rule. And so you can imagine Isaiah opening up his broadsheet, his newspaper that morning, and the headline said again, We desperately need a king to rule us. It's gone on so long, this regency. We need a king. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. In other words, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the real king sitting on his throne high and lifted up. And just glance to the end of verse 5. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Lord there, capital L-O-R-D, is Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the King of his people. Now, try to get a sense of what Isaiah is seeing. The fact that Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne at a time when the leadership of God's people was so weak, there was no leader on the throne, says to us two things. One, that leadership of God's people must always be exercised under God as the true king. When it is not, the leaders of God's people lead without reference to God, without reference to his authority, and therefore lead God's people astray. That is what had happened in Isaiah's day and happens still. Laura prayed for the leadership of this church, the elders. They are only effective in leadership in a church if they lead conscious of the higher rule of God as their king. That is true in a local church. It is true much more widely in the church. The second thing that uh, Isaiah's side of the Lord on his throne at a time when God's leadership was so weak says to him and to us is that when God's people, leaders and others, lead and live without reference to God's authority as their king, that in no way alters the fact that God is and remains on his throne, high and lifted up. That never changes. There is a, not any time that God gets off his throne because we get off leading God's people well. God is always on his throne. God always knows what he is doing. There is a stability to what Isaiah sees. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, steady as a rock, sovereign and secure in his power and authority. Now, what Isaiah sees here is both frightening and comforting at the same time. It's frightening to those in leadership amongst God's people to get a sight of the fact that God is on his throne and he is the true king. To lead under his rule. Or you might end up with no king on the throne or no leadership in the church. The comforting side is that God is on his throne. And he's right there today with the Lord Jesus beside him as the king of God's everlasting kingdom. And the Lord hasn't got off the throne because things are difficult in the western part of his globe. He's not racing around for a solution. He's there. He's high and he's lifted up. Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Maybe some of you watched the state opening of Parliament this week. All manner of robes were on display. All manner of robes. In Isaiah's vision, the train of God's robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. When you think of cherubim and seraphim, 
I think of pictures of uh, little childlike creatures with trumpets. Seraphim literally means fiery ones. Scary, not in the sense of sinister, but scary in the sense of awesome. Somebody asked me after the first service, were they like creatures in Harry Potter? Didn't know how to answer that, really. I said, no, they weren't much more scary. But they're not little comfortable beings with trumpets. They had six wings. With two, they covered their faces because they could not look on the face of God. With two, they covered their feet because they did not want God to look on them. And with two, they flew to do God's will to proclaim his word. And what are they proclaiming? They are saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice they are saying that to one another. And what God's people should be doing on the ground is saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy is uh, not so much a description there of God's purity or moral character as a description of his otherness, his uniqueness. In English, we use an adjective comparatively and superlatively. We say holy, more holy, most holy. In Hebrew, you just say holy, 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 which means most holy in Hebrew. God is the most holy, unique in his attributes, his character, his being, his moral purity, his sheer otherness as the Lord of hosts, his glory fills the earth. And the foundations, Isaiah records, of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house the temple was filled with smoke. As the seraphim call to one another, as they speak of the holiness of God and his glory, and the temple is filled with smoke, signifying the presence of God, the very foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook in Isaiah's vision. But then, all of a sudden, it is not just the temple foundations that shook Isaiah himself is shaken to the very core of his being. Why? Because of what he has seen, this vision of God, seeing the state of the people of God in his day, and then seeing the vision of the Lord in his majesty and holiness and power, struck Isaiah, shook Isaiah with the fear of the Lord. What is he feeling he felt, I guess at this moment, the sheer difference between the spiritual state of God's people and the otherness of God. And it shook his heart with fear. But there is something else more profound. He is, I think, affected personally in that he realizes he is part of the problem. The striking thing, I think, in Isaiah's life at this point, he is convicted that he himself is not walking in the light of the Lord and that he needs to repent and that he needs to be cleansed. So verse 5, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." 
Isaiah finds himself under deep conviction of his own sin. Words like sin and grace we use lightly, even casually, but they bear a deeper meaning when we say them in light of seeing who God is. Isaiah feels, knows he is not walking in the light of the Lord, and he feels lost. It is easy for us as we read the prophecy of Isaiah to turn the spotlight on somebody else, some other church. Isaiah will be God's prophet to his people, but first he convicts Isaiah of his own sin, and he might be doing the same for us. Now, when God brings somebody under conviction of sin, that is a process that yields to cleansing from sin. It is true at the point somebody becomes a believer, conviction leads to cleansing. A deep awareness of the need of forgiveness leads to being forgiven. Cleansing and forgiveness do not come without conviction of the need of cleansing and the need of forgiveness. That is to cheapen grace. We will hear exactly of how this has happened in Tarek's life when he speaks tonight. It is also true when somebody is a believer like Isaiah, when somebody is a follower of God, when somebody is connected at least as Isaiah was to the leadership of God's people in his day, and they are not walking in the light of the Lord. They cannot walk once again in the light of the Lord unless first they are convicted of the fact that they are not. And then cleansed. Verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The language here is of sacrifice and atonement. We see this through the cross of Christ. Jesus' death is the means for our once and for all forgiveness. But we need to keep returning to the cross for that ongoing cleansing and renewing when we are convicted of sin, when we are convicted that we are not walking in the light of the Lord. Conviction, cleansing, and then for Isaiah, his commission. He saw the Lord, and then he heard the voice of the Lord. Verse 6, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. There's a wonderful simplicity to God's call of Isaiah. Who will go? I will go. Then go. Now, you need to ignore the noise of the cutlery in the kitchen. I was taught that as a technique when you're a speaker. You front up to a noise in the kitchen, then you forget it. So don't listen to that. Listen to God. Either that or tell him to stop. It's very simple, isn't it? The call when it comes. To this man who has seen God, confessed his sin, it has stopped. Been cleansed of his sin. 
Who will go? I will go. Go. Now, second, let's consider what Isaiah is to go and say. It really has stopped, hasn't it? Isn't that great? Maybe you heard me. Shh. Now, here's the sting in the tail. What's his ministry, this prophet? What's his message? What is it going to achieve, this great vision of God and his throne that Isaiah sees that leads him to a deep conviction of his own sin, his confession, his contrition, the, the, the seraphim, the fiery one comes with a burning coal and cleanses him, and God says, who will go? And he says, I will go. And then God says, off you go, and you are going to have a wonderful ministry, Isaiah, and the people of God are going to turn back to me and walk in the light of my word, and you're going to see revival. This temple is going to be full of the sounds of the praises of God. It's going to be great, Isaiah. Well, God says to him, you're going to preach your heart out, Isaiah, for 40 years, and no one is going to see me or listen to what you say. No wonder, he says in a few minutes, how long, O Lord? So verse 9, he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isn't that striking? As I will preach his heart out for 40 years. God's people will not see the Lord and they will not hear the voice of the Lord. The text is even saying that it's Isaiah's preaching itself that will be the means of blinding their eyes and dulling their ears and their hearts. Now, what do we make of this? Well, at one level, we see it happening all of the time. Our speaking the truth about God, speaking the gospel, often has no impact at all. We uh, have just finished a Christianity Explored course again, and it's been great. The people have come, they've been ready, they've been willing, they've been listening, they're just lapping it up. It's great when that happens. Tonight we hear from Tarek, who heard the gospel and responded. So often when we share the gospel, it falls on a hard ground. Deaf ears. You get that sense. Sometimes as a minister, you preach your heart out week after week after week, and there are people who just never hear. Jesus said it was true in his ministry. Think of the parable of the sower. He quotes from Isaiah 6 there. The apostles said it was true of theirs. Striking at the end of his ministry, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the author of all these wonderful books in the New Testament, said at the end of his ministry, everyone has deserted me. No one has listened. That's striking. So we can understand this, but what I want us to make of it, however, is not to put ourselves in the position of Isaiah, the preacher, but the hearer. You and I are not Isaiah. We're not going to walk into church and get this kind of vision of the Lord and be a special prophet like he was. 
If we are anyone in the book of Isaiah, we are the people of God in our day listening to the prophet's message to us. As the Christian people in Scotland, we stand in the book of Isaiah as the people of God listening to the prophet. As Chalmers Church, we listen to Isaiah's ministry. We're not him. We're listening to him. Now, what does this say to us? The people of God in Isaiah's day did not see and did not hear the Lord. Will we in our day? If you're beginning to think it would be awful if we didn't, well, that's right. That's what we should think. And we pray that God will continue to speak to us and show us who he is. Do we see the Lord in his majesty and his holiness? So, What we've seen that Isaiah saw in some way, shape, or form, that's unique to him, but the sense of God's otherness, his uniqueness, is that what we see? Will we see it still? Are we hearing the voice of the Lord? I was listening to a series of sermons on Isaiah 6 by Dick Lucas. He had the bottle to say to his congregation that I never would have in the middle of his sermons. How many of you have not listened to the last 15 minutes of God's Word? He had the bottle to say that. I wouldn't. It's striking, isn't it? It's not me you're listening to with all the clutter and confusion and dullness of my voice. It's God. It's God. And we do as a church listen to God. We do. Will we go on listening to him? Pray that he will speak to us. Do we see the Lord or are our eyes heavy? Are we hearing the voice of the Lord clearly or are our ears heavy? It's made me think, am I really listening to the sermons I preach? You know, you can preach a sermon and not listen to it. Maybe you've never seen the Lord or heard his voice. And ask him if you can see him for who he truly is and hear him. When Dick preached his sermons in the city of London, 1974, I think it was, he preached on a Tuesday. That was the heart of his ministry to city business people, hundreds and hundreds of them. And as the weeks went by, And to be fair on Dick, he didn't actually get beyond chapter 8. When I see him, he's about to have his 90th birthday. I'm going to have it out with him. He needed to get to the sting in the tail, but he didn't. What he did say, though, week after week in St. Helens, as these city business people went off, he said, you're off to get your tube at Bank Station, or you're off to get on the Waterloo and City Line, called it the drain, to go back to Waterloo to go home. He said, I just wonder if you might, on the tube, just happen chance this afternoon to say, God, will you show me who you are? Will you speak to me? 
And many did ask. And many did see. And many did hear. The people of God in Isaiah's day did not see and hear the Lord. Do we? Will we? Will we keep on? And I guess that uh, applies to us personally, corporately, more broadly in the church in our day, in the nation. In Isaiah's day, they had drifted so far from the Lord, so far from the word of the Lord, that even when God raised up his prophet to speak to them, they could not see and they could not hear. It is striking. The pattern of would not see and would not hear can become could not see and could not hear. Now, we don't know what God is doing, what he will do. What we do know is that if we have eyes that can see God, we should be mighty thankful for that and keep on asking that we will see him. If we have ears that hear God, we need to be thankful for that and keep on coming to listen to his voice and heed his voice. Why? Because it is only when we see and hear with the Lord, that our hearts will be convicted. And if there is no conviction, there will be no cleansing. And if there is no cleansing, there will be no commissioning. And if there is no commissioning, God will not say to us who will go. And if there is no conviction and cleansing, we will not answer me. And if we do not see and hear him clearly, he will not have the confidence to say to us, go. See, the, the pattern runs in that way. The people of God who see and hear the voice of the Lord are the people who hear God in the end say, who will go? I will go. Off you go. Now, finally, verses 11 to 13. God knows what he is doing. It must have been a real shock to Isaiah to have seen the Lord in the way he did to have heard the voice of the Lord in the way he did, to have been convicted of his sin in the way that he was, to have been cleansed so powerfully and commissioned to a ministry that in his lifetime would yield no fruitfulness. Of course, Isaiah didn't know that people all through history would preach his book, did he? God didn't tell him that. Nobody told Isaiah that people would turn up to chapter 9 every Christmas and rejoice in the glorious prophecy of, for to us a child is born. God didn't say that, did he? He just said they wouldn't listen. And so Isaiah says, verse 11, he doesn't say, no, God, I'm not going to go. He says, how long, O Lord? And God said, until cities lie in waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. When it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. On the face of it, the situation is pretty bleak. 
The ministry of God's prophet will fall on deaf ears, but God knows what he is doing. He has not lost control. Remember, God, the beginning of the vision, is seated on his throne high and lifted up. God's purpose in Isaiah's time was to bring the people of God right down to reduce the city and the temple to rubble in order to render his people distinctive once again. It happened a generation after Isaiah. God's time, God plays a long game often. Jerusalem, the temple in ruins. God's people in exile in Babylon. God's purposes thwarted. Absolutely not. Think of God on his throne at the beginning of Isaiah's vision. I said that God is never off his throne. Do you think God was itching to get off his throne? generation later as God's people went into exile in Babylon. Do you think that took God off his throne? Do you think the 400 years of waiting before the Lord Jesus came, that's what's hinted at, I think, in verse 13 of chapter 6. Did God get off his throne? Not for a moment. He knows what he is doing. And whatever God is doing in our day, and we don't know in truth what he's doing, I'd like to know what he's doing. I'd like him to tell me. I'd like him to tell me exactly what he's going to do in Scotland in the next 50 years. If I'm really honest, I'd like him to tell me what part I've got to have in that. And we're all the same, aren't we? I'd like him to tell me what's going to happen in this city. He's not going to tell us, though, He's not going to tell us what he's doing, but the one thing we know is that he knows what he is doing. So like Isaiah, we need to be faithful in proclaiming God's word. We mustn't panic, try some new scheme. Whatever he is doing, God knows what he is doing. So we need to trust him, and we need to obey him and keep on proclaiming his word. Let's pray with all our hearts that we are not going to go into a period like an Isaiah's day when God's people will not see and listen to the Lord for a whole generation. Let's pray with all our hearts that it will not happen in Chalmers Church and that people like Tarek will keep on becoming Christians. Let's pray that we will come on Sundays Looking to see the Lord and looking to hear the Lord. Let's keep that we will keep on hearing these words in our church family. Who will go? I will go. Then go. Simple stuff. Simple clarity. But whatever happens, God knows what he's doing. We pray with all our hearts that as individuals, that as a church here and beyond, we would see and keep on seeing the Lord in his holiness, his majesty, his glory, and that we would hear and keep on hearing the voice of the Lord. There is every reason that, like in Isaiah's day, for a generation, people will not see the Lord and will not hear him. Let's pray they will. If you have not seen or have heard the Lord, I can't send you like Dick Lucas did off to the tube. But wherever you're going this afternoon, maybe you can ask him 
Lord, I want to see you. I want to hear you. I'm struck as we preach on Isaiah. There is big stuff in here. Let me encourage you as your minister, and this is not in my script, it's off-piste if you like, to listen, to listen, to listen to God's Word and to heed and obey it. These passages in Isaiah are wonderfully encouraging and wonderfully sobering at the same time. If you have ears to hear, as Jesus said, then hear. If you have eyes to see, then see. Talk about it over lunch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, its power, its clarity. We don't know what you're doing in our country. We don't know what you're doing even in our church. But you know what you're doing. And you're saying to us, amongst other things from this book, will you walk in the light of the Lord? Will you walk in light of my word? Will you be faithful to me? For I've been faithful to you. Help us, Lord, to see you for who you are and hear your voice clearly and so be ready to answer your call when it comes. If we have never seen you or heard you, or if we've got some kind of spiritual conjunctivitis and our eyes are clogged and there's wax in our ears, our hearts are dull, and coming along on a Sunday has become something just that we do, and opening up our Bibles on a Monday and a Tuesday morning and evening is something that we maybe used to do but no longer do. We pray, Lord, that we would see you for who you are, holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, whose glory fills the whole earth, and that we would hear the voice of the Lord. Be willing with humble and contrite hearts, to seek your forgiveness, that ongoing renewal, that cleansing that comes through the gospel. So that you can say to us, who will go? I will go. Then go. We pray that for us. We pray it more widely for the church in this part of the world. That you would not harden its heart and clog up its ears and blind its eyes but in your mercy you would keep showing them who you are and keep speaking that they might walk in the light of the Lord we ask this in Jesus name Amen <laughs>